What difference can one organization make in a global pandemic? The work we do in under normal circumstances can sometimes be traumatic. What I think no one could be prepared for was the level of emotional toll this was going to take very, very quickly. We're living in uncertain times, surrounded by chaos, fear, even outrage. But a new world is emerging, putting forth beams of hope, healing, community, and recovery. Welcome to Luminaries in the Dark, hopeful stories about people pivoting their life and their work to rise above chaos and help those in need. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken. Today we're talking with Megan Altimore, Vice President of Community Services and Operational Excellence for HopeLink, an organization dedicated to supporting people on their path to exiting poverty. Today's conversation is part two of a very special two-part interview. Hi, Megan. Welcome back to the show. So last week, we learned about HopeLink as an organization and began discussing the challenges that HopeLink, uh, the staff, volunteers, uh, and the clientele are all facing during this COVID-19 crisis, especially with the food assistance and non-emergency medical transportation programs. And when we brought last week's episode to a close, we had just begun talking about the importance of mental and emotional health care. Where I work at Microsoft, our company has been really fantastic in emphasizing that to all of its employees, making that a number one priority. How is HopeLink addressing that topic? There's a couple things, actually. We are fortunate enough that HopeLink has the same employee assistance program as Microsoft through Wellspring Family Services, and they have done a terrific job of providing resources through this time, including a few webinars for managers on how to provide that support to your staff. We're also not so much on our transportation side, but certainly on the community services side. You know, it's a group of social workers. (laughs) So they're used to being touchy-feely and they're used to talking those challenges out. So I think that that has definitely helped. People are used to having conversations. The work we do under normal circumstances can sometimes be traumatic. You know, when you're meeting with a family who's been living outdoors for the last eight months with a young child, that's traumatic when the domestic violence situation comes up. So making sure that our staff understand the impacts of trauma and understand how they react to it as well as their clients are reacting to it is a core piece of the work that we do under normal circumstances. And so we were prepared in that sense. What I think no one could be prepared for was the level of emotional toll this was going to take very, very quickly. So having those conversations really transparently with our staff and looking for opportunities. Last week, the call center folks, they did a socially distanced prom where they all came dressed for work in the most ridiculous outfits. And one at a time, they went in front of the photo booth to take pictures and then they shared it over teams. And so what are the silly things that we can each do? There's been so many baby pictures shared on teams and photo contests and memes, et cetera. And then, you know, places where there's some benefit to this. So last Friday was beautiful. And so the beginning of last week, we encouraged as many people who could possibly take the day off to take the day off because we do have the ability to right now to close on a day that previously we never would have been able to do. So things like that, where we're helping people really look at what they need to take care of themselves. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. I know how important that is. My management is doing that as well. I mean, we just have a GIF war, or I guess some people would pronounce it GIF war, 
last week. And that was kind of fun. And you mentioned having the flexibility of giving your staff the Friday off because it was beautiful weather. And I hope they all had had an amazing day because it was beautiful weather. But how does that work if you do take the day off? Is that messaged to your clients? That's what's so different about what's happening right now is that it isn't as daily. It isn't as imminent as the services were before. And so, for instance, our food distribution occurs on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so we have that flexibility on Fridays. And so we were able to look ahead and not have our financial assistance or our energy appointments scheduled on that day. Just with that four-day window, we were able to make that change. Our case management was able to connect with their clients on Thursday, make sure that everybody was in good shape before they were out on Friday. And then we had our on-call staff who unfortunately had to be on call, but no calls came in. So we were very lucky on a pretty Friday. But, you know, our customer service center, our non-emergency medical transportation, that staff, they certainly did still have to be at work. But because the medical facilities are, most of them are closed right now, we're down to about 40% of our typical volume. So some of those staff were able to be off too, because we don't have to have the concentration of staff that we normally would. And then our buses were only at a 40% capacity in that group too. This was a moment that is unheard of at Hopelink, and so that's why we took the opportunity. And my boss worked and had the best day ever because he got almost no email because none of us were working. (laughs) Everybody won that day. That's great. That is awesome. And then speaking of the call center staff who did have to go into work, the other half of the non-emergency transportation program is the transport, the driver, the patient. I'm really curious, how is that continuing through this crisis? How was that pivoted? What changes have been made? Are there still drivers who are volunteering to drive? That was a huge body of work between our team and the owners of the cab companies that we contract with. We do provide, under normal circumstances, we provide training to the drivers so that they know how to safely help someone in and out of their vehicle because someone might have some mobility issues. And so we knew we had that part covered, but there was the issue of transporting people who may or may not be exposing them to COVID. And so there was a a fair number of cab drivers who, for their own health and the health of their family, said, I'm I'm not going to be able to do this. I can't take those rides. But there were some who agreed to continue. And so with that, it was a new training regimen, making sure they had cleaning supplies for the backseat of their vehicles so that they could sanitize between each rider, where possible, putting plexiglass up between the rider and the front seat to protect both the rider and the driver, face masks and hand sanitizer between each of the interactions, and making sure that people were social distancing when they could, and so paying attention to those pieces. One of the other things that we were able to do was to identify a provider, a partner company that was able to safely transport patients who were diagnosed with COVID. And so that was a a differently structured vehicle, one that had a lot more safety involved, and then full PPE for the driver that was then changed between each transport. That was finding and identifying that vendor, that, that business, and then negotiating with the state of Washington to pay what's obviously a much higher rate for that transportation than a typical cab would be. That was put in place so that we had a company that was dedicated to that COVID transport. The issue was, though, that people don't always know 
And if they were going to a medical appointment and they had the symptoms, they might not have been tested yet. What's about to happen as the doctor's offices reopen, we're preparing for that now in terms of what that will look like as the volume goes back up. And will there be cab drivers who are open to that transportation? And my crystal ball is not giving me an answer on that yet, (laughs) but we're hopeful. The magic eight ball after shaken is telling you to ask again later? Ask again later. That's exactly the answer. Though I will say our team is doing an amazing job of getting the companies prepared, making sure that they have PPE, that they have the sanitation supplies and doing as much as they can. Because the other piece to this is that those cab drivers rely on the income of these rides. And we want to make sure that they have the financial support as well so that their families are taken care of. In, in terms of the transportation program, do you have any personal stories about people's usage of the transportation program? The experience that I have had very recently is I do still go into the office periodically And two of the customer service staff who were moved out of the call center and over into our Redmond facility, they're sitting in a spot that I can hear them and I can hear their calls. And we take tens of thousands of calls a month. And last year alone, we arranged a million and a half rides. And so it's a very volume piece of work that they're doing. And even now that it's cut in half, still a lot of people that they're talking to every day. And I'm amazed as I listen to them because they answer the phone with such joy and they engage. It's so quick. It's, you know, a three minute call and they have to go through a series of questions and it's driven by a database and all of the the sort of rote things that we all do when we do a job like that. But they are joking with the person on the phone and they're asking how they are and they're interested in their day and they're having those moments of connection. And that's just not something that you expect in this type of volume and listening to them and then listening between calls as they laugh with each other. It's actually weirdly enough brought a new life to this building that I've been in since we opened it a year and a half ago that I've really enjoyed because they're taking such joy in making this connection with people and they're out of their work element. They've been moved into two other staff's cubicles. They are working in a new building in a different city. And they just dove right in and they brought that care and compassion. That to me has just been so uplifting when I get to hear them. And when I hear their laughter coming over the wall, it's really been a lot of fun for me to be able to experience that. And it definitely is not the image that is conjured by the term non-emergency medical transportation call center. You can't think of a drier, more sterile type of image. And yet the warmth is just so beautiful. And I've really been grateful to get to know them because it's a secure facility where that call center is. And the only reason we're able to have them in the workspace that they're in right now is because we've severely limited the people who can be in the building so that we are able to keep that information protected. So in my 16 years, I've never had this level of exposure to it. So it's been really fun. Well, that's really great. And those sorts of personalities are really important to have working in that sort of environment. And I'm sure the clients really appreciate it too. Along with the close proximity that people need to be for the transportation program, thinking more about the food assistance program and the grocery store model, that seems like also everyone's in close proximity. And it sounds like a fantastic model to have. What happened there? Were you able to keep that model? 
Yes, that was our first and fastest pivot. That first week of March, we closed all of our grocery stores. We were only closed for two days. And then that following week, we opened distributing boxes of food where it's prepackaged. It's 21 meals worth of shelf staple food. And then we also include with it some produce and some commodities that come through the federal government. And that could be milk, eggs, frozen meat, things like that. So people are leaving with a substantial amount of food, but we're doing that through a really careful distribution model that is allowing us to stay six feet apart as we do it. And so at our five locations, someone comes to the door, they tell us how many people are in their household, and then we fill up a grocery cart with the right amount of food for them in terms of the shelf staple boxes and the produce and the commodities. They take that to their car, and then they bring that grocery cart back and our volunteer or our staff member sanitizes it before we give it to the next person. One of the changes that we have recently put in place is that we're requiring masks for all staff and volunteers who are involved in that to make sure that we're attending to safety. We do see a lot of people week to week. So last week, we gave away 3,000 boxes of food. And all told, in the weeks that we've been doing this, we've given away 23,000 boxes which is the equivalent of 488,000 meals. This has been a big investment of money, a big investment of time, a really huge change to the way that we work. But there's also been a lot of commitment to this. The clients who are showing up, they are instantaneously grateful for the fact that we're there and we're available and they can come get food. And we're not asking any questions other than how many people are in your household. And so The way that we're describing it, and as the data person in me just cringes when I say this, but we've given up data for the sake of safety. And so typically we have a robust enrollment process and we have lots of information about who we're serving and how often and all of those data elements. And we have stopped all of that because the fact is people need food and we want to keep the lines moving quickly when people are coming through. They're all wearing masks and either heavy-duty gloves or they're washing their hands very frequently so that we can make sure that we have a, a safe system going on to supply these boxes. Food has been an issue. It's been an expensive endeavor to do this. As I mentioned at the start, we normally have 80% of our food donated, but we are not safely able to take in those donations in the way we used to right now. So for those first three months, we purchased the food, which was a cost of about $300,000. And our normal annual cost of purchasing food is 250000 And so massive, massive investment for our sake, for our purposes, compared to what it would have normally been. We needed to figure out how to open back up to donations. There's also an outcry from the community. Like there's this real drive to want to help. So a couple of weeks ago, we set up our first socially distanced food drive. We were calling it the most OCD food drive that had ever been. It was at one location for four hours only. We only wanted eight different items of food, and the response was gigantic. It went on for four hours. We backed up traffic to the highway in Kirkland, and we ended up at the end of the day collecting 24,000 pounds of food. The response was just, it was amazing. And so we're doing it again this weekend, and People are excited to be able to come support us and do this again. And we're looking for new ways to be able to take in donated food and have the situation be safe for everyone involved because we need this support. The food supply chain is definitely backlogged. 
We are looking at how we can make sure that the food is still there for us to be able to serve the community. So we're looking at all sorts of creative solutions. One of the things that we're playing with is, could there be a socially distanced, safe food drive that a neighborhood could do and bring us that food at a designated time that's already been sorted so that then we let it sit for three days and then we can move it into the rotation? So we're looking at different ways that we could ask people for help that would keep them safe and keep us safe and be able to still keep that food supply chain moving. Because we can't fail on this. We cannot leave people without food. And with the grocery store model, having to switch back to what sounds like essentially the original model of boxes of food, how did your clients receive that? What was their reaction to that? We were worried about that because... The dignity and respect element of what we were doing, the cultural appropriateness and the equity work was so important to us. Making sure that our staff, when they gave out the food, were engaging and and were talking to people and making it as friendly and welcoming an opportunity, even though we were still giving a box of canned goods. And none of the negative response that we were nervous about materialized. None of it. It really was incredible the connection and the the relief, you know, just that visceral relief that we were there and there was food for them. The most incredible day that we had is probably about a month ago. Weirdly enough, there was a Seattle Times reporter there and the timing was just crazy that this happened. But an elderly gentleman approached the table where we were distributing food and he had two $5 bills. And he said, I was here yesterday to get food and I needed it so badly. And it was so important that you did that. And I needed to be able to help you. I needed to be able to give back. And so he gave those two fives to our staff to then put in as a donation. And, you know, that $10 is huge for someone who is coming to us for food, but it was so important for him to be able to give back. Those moments, those moments of connection of people really wanting to help, the number of volunteers and clients who came through the food drive, who wanted to help to give back was really incredible. It really makes you realize how connected the community is and the knowledge that we're there, even through the fear, because certainly our staff have fear in interacting with this number of people, but it's worth it. You know what I mean? We're, we're being careful. We're, we are staying six feet apart. We're doing the right things, but it does still make you, it gives you pause, but the importance of it sort of outweighs the pause. That's right. And it's important to the people who are helping as well. You know, it's worth it to them to help and make a difference. And so speaking on that, how has the community jumped in to support and help out? It's been incredible. We're always really fortunate. We receive funding through each of the local suburban cities and the community members, our volunteers, our donors, our funders through the cities, through the corporate connections, foundations. They have reached out on a regular basis and said, what do you need? The donations that have come in have been powerfully strong, but the community response, not just philanthropic, but just sort of the care for our staff and for our clients has been gigantic. People have really responded. All of the support that you are getting now is fantastic, but are you concerned at all about what happens if this continues for the long term? So the short answer is yes, very. But there's, there's a lot of strength to lean into during this time. I was at HopeLink in 2008, 2009 when the recession hit, and our food numbers went up to 
19,000 people that we were serving through our food banks. And the community responded. The food donations went up with the need during that time when, when everybody was having some sort of impact through that financial situation. I've done this work in three different regions of the country. I've never experienced philanthropy like we have here in King County. I have a lot of hope and faith in the community in terms of what they will respond to. The support is pretty solid. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, you know, not having our luncheon, people giving lots of money right now. What will that look like next year? So I'm hopeful, but I am also concerned because, you know, our contract with King County Metro, what's going to happen with that in terms of how the buses get back on the road? the magnitude of need that's going to be through that medical transportation, our financial assistance for rent, how do we make sure that we still have resources to be able to provide to the community when this eviction moratorium is lifted and you have people who haven't paid their rent. So we are really looking planfully forward of how to make sure we're in the best situation to be able to help people. We're balancing our budget right now for FY21. And you know that was a bit of a hairy number, the deficit that we had to fill. But I am confident we're going to get to the right place. I think we're well situated in terms of being really fiscally responsible as an agency. But this is unprecedented. Looking ahead, I keep hearing from people, we'll never go back to normal. And it's true, we will never go back to the old normal. But I think through the crisis, a new normal will evolve. What do you think? this new normal will look like? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the conversation that we have really been spending a lot of time on over the last few days. We feel pretty settled through June. You know, we know what that short term looks like, but really thinking about in each one of our program areas, what's optimal? What is the way that we can meet the need the best way we can, but knowing that we can't do it the way we used to until there are measures of safety, a vaccine, a treatment, whatever, whatever that might look like. How do we need to change? We can't give people the same box of food every two weeks. There has to be some variety in there. And so how do we make sure that we're changing for that? How do we go back to being more connected from a cultural standpoint? Previously in our food banks, our staff were able to do some of the food purchasing that was specific to their clientele. And so in Bellevue, we always had fresh beets because we have a large Russian senior population. And in Kirkland, we always had fresh chilies and jalapenos because we have a Latinx population there. So really paying attention to who we're connecting with in the community. How do we bring some of that back? You know, how do we, how do we connect and yet from a distance with our community? And that's the piece that we're really focused on right now. And school's still out and summer camps have been canceled. And so how do we support our staff? who are also parents or staff who might be caring for their parents or spouse through this situation. And so we're looking at those elements too of how we can be as flexible as we can. And yet ultimately the mission comes first. And so meet the needs of people who are experiencing poverty out there. I definitely don't have an answer, but I have lots more questions, I guess, is what I just gave you. <laughs> right. And those are important questions I think that a lot of people are asking. I, I know, for example, I've got colleagues at Microsoft after talking with them during this work from home period and being able to spend extra time with their family and their children. You know, they're like, I never want to work in an office again. So with the advancements in the technology you've made in order to 
enable them to work from home. Do you think you'll continue that or will you at some point try to go back to the old-ish normal where they're working back in the offices? How do you envision that? I imagine it's going to be a mix of that. It is going to continue to be a mix of people who are in the buildings and out of the buildings and working from home. And one of the funniest things that has evolved for us through this is we had deployed Office 365 about a year ago, and we were all limping. You know, like we were doing it, but not really doing it. And, you know, we're nonprofit people. We're not, <laughs> we're not focused on the tech. Boy, are we good at it now. And it was a baptism by fire, but we are teams experts now, and we can find our documents where we put them in the right place. There have been some benefits that have come out of this that have been really good in terms of that. So I do think that there is going to be a different view of what working in the office versus working from home means. In terms of the food program, and the transportation program, as we do start evolving into that new normal, how do you envision the food program and the transportation program evolving through those phases as well? I'm sure with the food program, you're really looking forward to getting back to the grocery model. We are, but we don't know when that will be. Just had a conversation about that today in terms of where are the opportunities? You know, can we open one location on a Saturday where people are choosing to come and wear face masks and socially distance in the shopping area? But the volume is so significant with the number of households that we're seeing every week that there just is a, a limit to how many hours in the day that these facilities are open. And while we set them up like a grocery store, they're nowhere near the size of a grocery store. And so the the safety element is really critical to us. And about 30% of the people that we serve are seniors and disabled. And so making sure that we're not doing anything to put their health at risk either. So I don't know when those grocery stores are going to reopen, but I can tell you that we are going to work toward that every day because the food boxes are good. They're important. They are valuable to meet the nutrition needs, but they're definitely not best practice. They're not the way we want to do this work. I think that we are going to make definite efforts to be able to bring some of this back as quickly as we can. But for the time being, I think that the boxes are, are what we are dealing with. And we're lucky that we also have access to fresh and frozen items that we're able to provide with it so that we're not just, we're giving produce too and dairy and things that people need to go along with those shelf staples. And as long as those pieces keep flowing, we'll be able to keep doing this in a way that has a little bit of variety to it too. For the transportation program, I think that what is about to happen is that volume. As doctor's offices reopen, we are going to see a significant need. And I am confident in our call center staff to be able to manage that. And I think that our partner relations staff has been doing a great job of working with our partners out there. And it's really just going to be figuring out that right mix of when the doctor's offices come back online and what that's going to look like for the people who want to get to their medical appointments. And I think the big unknown, and we're seeing this on the news from states that are reopening, is how do people feel about getting out there? How do people feel about taking those risks? And that's the piece that we don't necessarily have exposure to right now. How much will the comfort level also align with the opening opportunities that are coming out there? We don't have the crystal ball on that one either. And so the best we can do is just listen to the folks that we're serving and make sure that we're responding to what they are asking for 
to the best that we can. And you're right. You don't have a crystal ball to see what's going to happen in the future. But what you do have is a huge outpouring of support from the community, from organizations, thousands of volunteers, your staff. But I'm sure there are still a lot of people out there who aren't involved and want to be. What's the best way for people to reach out? How do they figure out where they can fit in? Because you've got such a large organization with such a wide assortment of services that you offer. What's the best way for people to just jump in? Thanks for asking that. So there's a couple ways. And I have a running joke with my colleagues that I spend the money. I don't raise the money. But I will step out into their arena right now and say we can always use donations. <laughs> and so at hopelink.org, there is a big donate button that is really critical. So I'm not good at that ask, but I'm just going to throw it out there sort of ham-handedly. The other opportunity is, as I mentioned, on hopelink.org, there is that button. Right now, it says four-hour food drive, but normally it says how to help Hopelink. If you click there, you see the, the opportunities of what we need. We'll continue to communicate about the food drives as they're happening. And then any volunteer opportunities that do come up under our Take Action tab on the, the website, there is the current volunteer opportunities. And they're limited, but I do hope that they will be opening as, as time goes on. And then the other piece, just in general, is to support the community. So one of the pieces that we put out on our social media is how to safely put together a box of food for a neighbor. What is it that someone that you know might need that you might be able to help with? Just really having an eye out for what those needs are in your community. You know, take Hopelink out of the middle and help someone who needs it because that really makes the community more healthy and that benefits all of us. And so it's great if you help us. We very much like that and appreciate it extremely, extremely gratefully. But we also know that you may know someone that you might be able to help directly to. And if you are someone who is in need, what's the best way for them to reach out? So that same website, so hopelink.org, there's a line at the top that talks about what our services look like during COVID. So they just click on that and it'll show them what the services are and how they can access that. And if they have any questions, there's always the email that they can send in through our contact link, or they can call their local center, whatever city they live in, they just look that up and they call that center and we will call them back and answer whatever questions they have. And not just what HopeLink can do, but also information that we may have about other community partners that might be able to meet their need as well. That sounds great. Megan, thank you so much. This has been a, a really special conversation. I genuinely appreciate your time. And it's such an important cause, a great organization. So thank you for having the conversation with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I could talk about this longer and I shouldn't. So I very much appreciate your thoughtful questions and the fact that people are interested in this, that they want to know and they want to help. And so thank you. Thank you very much for, for the invitation to HopeLink to participate. Absolutely. It's important during these uncertain times that we do what we can to help light the path through the darkness. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken, for Luminaries in the Dark. Stay safe, stay healthy.